This is Tomorrow Today, Playing With Our Future, Part 2 with Hawk Robinson. Before COVID, candidly, I hated video conference. Uh, I've always hated mm-hmm. it. I just, I don't know, maybe I'm just an old guy. And it just never took for me, really. And, and I prefer phone calls, and I much prefer face-to-face. I'm old enough to remember that ad campaign from AT&T when they said long distance Reach is the next best thing to being someone. there. And I always used to say, yeah, the next best thing, right? It's right. I, I, I'm a guy who I literally took a, a plane one time to have an a meeting in the Frankfurt airport for 40 minutes. And I knew it was going to be 40 minutes. Doesn't matter. I'd rather do that than a phone call or a video call. I'm just that guy. <laughs> um, but what I we saw during COVID, uh, during the pandemic, and I think still are seeing the vestiges of that, is this sense of disconnectedness that people had, right? The sense of people who were isolating, uh, who were isolated or self-isolating one or the other. And as a consequence, they're limiting human contact. And what you're saying is, we can use these mechanisms as a tool to help people engage in in actual human experiences. Because whenever we talk about gaming, I think we talk about leaving the human behind, right? And there there was this, uh, you probably, I'm sure you saw it. There's this episode of the Big Bang Theory. And, you know, Penny gets into gaming and they're all worried about it because she's living in this virtual world and not living in the real world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what you're saying is it doesn't have to be that way. Right, right. Yeah, and it is always about balance, right? You have to have – so I would set up programs that were balanced between outdoor time, indoor time, screen time, social time, uh, self-time, you know, hygiene, all these things. And what was interesting to note was during this period – uh, these clients reported how observationally, and, and I would see some of it, they were doing much better than their peers who didn't have these recreational programs laid out for them. And they were a mixture of, so, so in full disclosure, I own a small company called dev to dev Portal, among other companies, that specialized in virtual office and workplace. So back in the 90s, I was constantly having to set up virtual office workplaces for the companies I'd worked for, and I got tired of it. Yeah. I was like, can't I just buy a service or a box and just order it just like you order cable to your house? So everybody can just do the virtual office thing. This is before Zoom and all that existed. So I had a, I have a company that specializes in that, that virtual connection. One of the key things that's missing for most of these, and still an issue, uh, two years ago I did a bunch of consulting work for PBS, the public broadcasting service, uh, related to this as well, about the whole virtual office experience that most people do feel it's lacking. And, and yes, I agree. It's always better if you can to have an in-person experience that adds another layer to the experience. Totally agree. That's a wonderful opportunity. Completely encourage it. However, in circumstances where that's a problem, right. what are the things you can do to mitigate the, those constraints? And you know, I have I've had some clients who were complete recluses. Right? They completely prior to COVID. Well, you know, there are agoraphobics. I mean, there are people who just don't go out. Yes, yeah. the formal terms agoraphobic and, xenof- and uh, xenophobic and social and many social phobias and right. it, it, a whole range of things. But but they had made their life had gotten smaller and their bubble of their life had become their apartment or in one case, their room. They wouldn't even leave their room pretty much except go to the bathroom, right? Just got smaller and smaller and smaller. Every time they'd have a bad experience, they'd shrink away or they had a panic attack, they'd shrink away. And so so with these clients, I started out with playing with them virtually online through like Neverwinter Nights on one of my own servers where I could control the server environment and the adventure and the interaction and all that to get them comfortable with me. Wow. 
Then I might come to their house and play with them there. Then I would have them watch some of my tabletop games at my offices remotely over a camera. And then I'd have them come watch in the room. And then I'd have, you know, this is, exp- this is all exposure therapy techniques. Right? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, it sounds like exposure therapy like you would use with phobias. Yeah. It's incremental exposure therapy rather than flooding. I don't like flooding, for especially for people traumatized. Right. And those of you who are listening, the difference is exposure therapy is if I want to get you to be not terrified of heights, I'd have you first stand on you know a tiny little block that's maybe an inch off the floor, and we'd work up to a stepladder. Or just visualize. Or visualize. Even. Exactly point. Uh, flooding would be I take you up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and hold you by your belt. <laughs> yeah. Throw you in the deep end of the swimming pool <laughs> and deal with it. Exactly. Flooding is how... You know, people of our generation learned how to swim. <laughs> Throw you in and good luck. Yes, there you go. Yes. Yeah. Some people, after they've tried incremental, if, if incremental has an approach, then sometimes flooding is approached. But in other cases, it makes more trauma. Yeah. Anyway, so then I increment them to playing in the game in my offices where they, they've learned to trust the gamers and me. Oh, have to be in your physical presence. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So now, and then, you know, I might transport them initially and then have them start using the bus and and deal with the anxiety. Some days are better than others. But over time, these take a few months, then I'd have them come and watch a game in a game store in a public setting. And I'd be there with them. And then I'd leave them in increasing amounts of time. And then eventually they'd join the game there, right? And and then again, with assistance and then less and less assistance. Well, now those clients, all pre-COVID, were on their own, going to game sessions. Some of them, they got their entire life back. They, they overcame their phobias. Their lives are, they're working jobs, they're going to the store. It's, it's a thing of the past. Wow. I had one client who didn't fully generalize all of it, but their bubble has gone from their, because this was the one that was most extreme, to, from their room, to they go to the store for groceries, they go to two game sessions a week. They run one and they play in one. Right, and they get that socialization. So a functional life every week. Yeah, they're they're out of the house three times a week. Yeah, and that maintained through COVID. You, you know, up until when you weren't allowed to do yeah. even that. And, and look, for those of you who don't know this area, um, people who suffer from agoraphobia this extent, that's a miracle. Yeah, frankly, you know, a lot of these people end up shut in for years and years and years and years. So they got their life back. Kudos to you. I, I think that's extraordinary. But what's really interesting to me is where it starts. Video games. You're starting. With uh, a completely, I don't want to say depersonalized because I don't. I think that sounds too deprecating. But you see what I'm saying? It's a safety buffer. Yeah, you're creating. Thank you. This safe buffer through the game, mm-hmm. where they, you know, as easily as I could. And again, I'm not a gamer, but I, um, I'm working on my uh, chess. Mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things my chess coach has me doing is playing with real people uh, through Lee Chess or Chess.com. And I, I play way better against the computer, even at a really high level. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, bizarrely, I play better across the board. But, you know, if I wasn't agoraphobic, he would be doing that, right? He would have me play against the computer. Then start playing maybe him right. again across the board is is exactly what you're doing, and then you know let's introduce a friendly stranger, one who's not going to crush you or one that's not going to make fun of you. And I explicitly did not use like World of Warcraft. I used servers that I could control and have safe people ah. because if I took somebody who's already got social traumas and stuck them on wow uh, that and I, i'd already experimented with that in the past they would not have positive experiences yeah because there's i mean people affect a different persona and usually not in a positive way online quite often right now also runescape was another one that was geared for kids so that was also a safe environment so okay. finding servers that encourage 
you know, re, re, that they're highly administered and they, they can, the behavior is highly controlled. Right. And then with my own servers, because with Neverwinter Nights, I could create my own modules. I could create specific targeted stories to achieve specific goals besides just the agoraphobia of things that they were dealing with. So if they're, if they're dealing with just being afraid of taking on certain types of challenges, I could incorporate that into the narratives on these servers. So do me a favor, before we move forward, tell me a little more about Neverwinter Nights because yeah. uh, I'm unfortunately unfamiliar with it. Okay, so Neverwinter Nights was published by Atari and BioWare back around 2002. It's an old game. Uh-huh. Um, it'll run on pretty much anything. And it had really good legs because two, they did a couple of things. One, they made a client that played really well on Linux, and so that encouraged the open source community to join. Sure. Two, they included the tool set they used to create the adventures. So they took, I think it was like two years to create the tool set, and then they took a year to create the adventures. And then they publish, you, when you buy the full game, you get the tool set, the Aurora tool set, oh, cool. to create the modules of your own. And if you're willing to sit down and learn how to use the tool, you can create modules, worlds, towns, people, creatures, etc. that you can go have you and your friends play so You've been able to leverage this into a therapeutic tool. Therapy and education and, and yeah. Wow. And, and, and professional services, yes. So so over time, I did that. Also, I've done some experiments with electroencephalogram uh, and BCI brain-computer interface, how to play the game with just your brain, but that's a that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Uh, so so fast forward, it was starting to wane. It, it, it held popularity for a really long time. For years and years and years, it was still a very popular game, and the price came down, you know, from the $40, $50, $60 range down to like $5, $10, you know, bottom-of-the-barrel range, and then, and it was on Steam, and you could get it really cheap. Well, they did a, they've been doing reboots of games recently, and a few years ago, they did a... Uh, Neverwinter Nights Enhanced Edition, where they brought it up to date to run on newer computers. It runs on Windows, Mac, PC, Linux, uh, and even mobile devices, although the mobile devices and PlayStation and other consoles, but the consoles and mobile devices are not exactly the same experience. And I yeah. I can't recommend the console ones. They're pretty crappy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the mobile ones are okay. Unless anyone's listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're just really buggy and they they don't play as well. But yeah. but the PC, Mac, Linux, and mobile ones are great. And they're all, you can have up to 64 players on the same server. So you can have you know a, a small to large group. You can host your own server as you want or you can go play on other people's servers. And the cool part is you can make your own worlds and host that and let your friends play. That is really cool. It reminds me of going back to the first Sim worlds that were coming out, right, a couple of years ago. Sims Online. Sims Online, and when you were able to create these virtual environments and everyone thought we'd have virtual conferences in them and all. Before that was Quake with QED, Quake Quake uh, Editor. You could create your own dungeons in Quake in the, in the 90s. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's wonderful for developers. If they include that with their product, they really give a lot more longevity to their community. Well, I'll offer, I, I, I'm sure that's probably true. Um, I did a little homework before we came out, mm-hmm. and yes, I read your book. <laughs> oh, the workbook? <laughs> the workbook that you made, which incidentally, you're going to be the first guest in history that I'm going to recommend people not read your workbook. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you know why, right? Because it's not meant to be read. It's not meant to be read. Very clear <laughs> about that, right? It's yeah. It's meant to be augmenting to your experiences. But one of the uh, you, you share an anecdote right in the preface to the book, and you talk about, you know, uh, don't try this at home sort of a thing, right? I mean, you didn't say that, but it's – this is not – this is going to sound weird for me to say, but this isn't a game, 
right? You talk about uh, that school that tried to implement this poorly, and they ended up with literally with violence yes. without to shut the school for a short time until you and your team were able to come in and fix things. I wonder if you'd talk about that for a little bit. Yes. So this is here in Spokane and is part of the Spokane Public School District. And Washington State recently changed some laws that unfortunately caused problems with charter schools and such. But anyway, this was a school called uh, Eagle Peak, and it was kind of the uh, last chance alternative school. So if you... If you look, each district has its own alternative school. So Mead District has its Mead Alternative, Spokane District has its uh, Spokane Alternative, et cetera. So for kids that are struggling or their IQ levels and other tests aren't quite what they need and they have an IEP, uh, uh, you know, a specific program that they have to meet and they're not able to be mainstreamed in the main classrooms, these are where those kids go. Yeah. And Eagle Peak is the school that even that they've failed in the alternative school to make it. They haven't been able to thrive. So this is at the end of the road, you go to a cul-de-sac and down at the end of that cul-de-sac under the rock is your last chance for school, for high school. That's like where I went to school. Sure. <laughs> you fourth through 12th grade, about 100 students at the time. Uh, between fourth and 12th grade, they have very high teacher to student ratio. I think it was only eight or nine students per teacher. Uh, there's always like two people and two two instructors in a class. And a lot of these kids are right at the 80 IQ mark. A lot of them abusive home situations and drugs and gangs. It's a borderline defend, detention center. They, they aren't being held. It, this is truly the last chance. I mean, these kids, yeah. if they don't make it here, they're lost. The kids are there because they want to be there. Of course. Partly because it's the only chance they get to eat. Yes. Um, that's a, I, Oh, that was heartbreaking during spring break when I saw that those kids came back starving. That really shook me up. But So they they had a couple of teachers who had about eight or nine years of dungeon mastering experience with D&D 5th edition. And so they decided to do an after-school program that they thought some of their kids might benefit from and tried to run that. And unfortunately, after a few sessions... The, there were behavioral escalations that led to having to do a school lockdown. Now, to be clear, a lockdown is just a short time, a few hours or a day at most. It's not sure. the rest of the day, but it's just for the day. All the doors slam shut. You know, it's just like if, if, if shooter were coming in, right? It's just somebody's gotten violent, tables got flipped, locked the place down. We've got to control the situation. Right. And these teachers are all trained to deal with these kids. They have years and years of experience. But they, with D&D 5th edition, were not able to achieve what they were seeing us and others that have been talking about the benefits achieve with this at-risk population. And I have written extensively about the caveats with at-risk populations and my issues with certain role-playing games not being ideal for that population. They're fine for the general population. Right. There's nothing inherently wrong with the game. You made the point, though. You went on to say it wasn't just this school. Uh, you said, and, and I'm not trying to hold you to task here. I, I, I find it fascinating. You said that it's not just this one school. Yes. You said that more than 99% of the RPG industry is doing yeah. it wrong. <laughs> industry itself. Okay. So, yeah, let's go for the controversy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, I think this is important. And, and I think when you're talking about something like gamification, using game in, in whether it's in therapy or whatever, uh, the circumstances for a positive outcome, I suffer from the same thing in my professions, right? Uh, I'm uh, a data scientist, a mathematician, a psychologist. Mm. Mm. Data science and psychology in many ways of the Wild West. Yeah. Any schmuck can call himself a therapist, 
right? Uh, you don't need to have. Uh, you need a license to to operate heavy equipment, to cut hair, to fish, to drive a car. But anyone can offer to be a therapist. Anyone can call themselves a data scientist. There is no regulation. And I see right. in your industry also, you have this, well, I played games for a lot of years. And, and even, unfortunately, they look at Hawk and they say, hell, you were teaching about this stuff when you were still in high school. So- you know, I I went to high school and I played D and D. So can't I create these programs? So I'm, I'm not yeah. offering this controversially. I think you're exactly right, but I want you to share with our listeners yes. why it's important that people know what the hell they're talking about. That 99% that I'm referencing there is a couple of areas. The main area that I usually talk the most about is the barrier to entry for new gamers. Right. Then we talk about applied gaming, which is using it for educational, therapeutic, at-risk populations, et cetera, which is, which is another layer of that. So first with the barrier to entry, in that right now, 99 point whatever percent of role-playing games published, and certainly all of the ones currently published, do not have such a high barrier for a new player. So let's say you get it for your birthday or a Christmas present. You get this box. This is the introductory set of Game X, D&D or... Pathfinder or whatever. And they have introductory starter sets. The, from my argument, they should be able to tear the wrapper off and start playing within five minutes by themselves at first as they learn the basics. Then at some point later after they've gone through some solo adventures and learning the basics, be able to hand a copy of that to another friend who wants to play as well. And then also the game should guide the first person through running their first game with one or more players. And it should hold their hand through this. This is all ability model related stuff. So from uh, uh, starting with very much railroaded to training wheels to sandbox, start with here's what you do next, here's what you do next, very procedural approach of how to run your first game. Now, there have been in recent years, Call of Cthulhu, Pathfinder, and D&D have released introductory starter sets. And D&D has always released basic sets since, since the second edition, or since the AD&D onward. Yeah. And they have sometimes a solo tidbit, but they don't really have good solo. Call of Cthulhu does really good solo play. They teach you the basic of the game as a player. But then when it comes time to GM the first time, it says, now read all the rules. Yes, it's a reduced version of the rules, but still 32 pages. And read the whole adventure to prepare to GM your first game. Well, that's a very high barrier to entry. And so what's happened is you have two major barriers to new players adopting role-playing games besides genre and all these other stuff. This is just a design issue. One is that you rely on either the mentor model or the MAST, M-A-S-S-E-D, MAST learning model. So in the you know, neuroscience of learning, distributed learning is far more effective than you know, cramming it, right? When you cram for a test, sure. you're gonna lose most of it. It's the least effective method of, of learning, especially complex topics. You're much better off with distributed learning, learning a little bit at a time and then layering on top of it, on top of it, et cetera. And it doesn't matter if it's pedagogical topics in education or therapeutic topics, if you just throw everything at a person all at once, they can only retain a small amount right. before their brain overloads and they lose a lot. Absolutely. So, so all of the role-playing games currently published rely on that masked learning approach or 
Number two, the mentor model. Now the mentor model is wonderful in a lot of ways. I'm not knocking the mentor model in general, but it doesn't scale. And you're, you understand tech as well. You have to have a GM or experienced player teach other individuals one by one by one how to play, and that doesn't scale. So, so these are the two really big bottlenecks to just more general uh, adoption, as I said, besides yeah. content and genre and all of that. Now let's get to the at-risk populations. Right. But before we get there, before we talk about the at-risk, I, I, I want you to, in, in talking about that also, address that notion of scalability. Because yes. uh, when I hear what you're doing and how you're, you know, uh, the, this literally the, the example you gave us where you held this person's hand starting with Neverwinter Nights and you were able to hold their hand through – that isn't particularly scalable. That's not leverageable. No, that's not scalable. With an at-risk population, you were also mentioning that in this particular school, it was a ratio of one or two teachers to eight or nine. This is as close as you can get in our world to one-on-one -on -one true mentorship. Yes. If, you, if you'd answer those questions together or think about those, put those together for me. So how do we talk about at-risk populations, mindful of the fact that I mean, I, I hate to be gross about this, but it needs to be cost effective at the end of the day. Right, right. Well, and at the end of the day, it needs to make financial sense. We can't, we can't clone you. You're, you're uh, aside from the fact that we can't. Uh, look, you're you're too expensive. Yes. honestly, we we can't have you sit with every kid who's at risk in America we, or, or, or the world. Right, we just can't do that. So, how do we leverage these platforms and these capabilities to be able to do that more effectively? Right, and that's what I ran into back in 2010 to 2014 where my client base got so huge I couldn't – I had to start turning clients away because yeah. you can only do so many hours a week and then that's it. So I tried to hire – You know, triangle, time, cost, and quality. Exactly. One of the has to go, right? And so you're unwilling to compromise on the quality. Exactly. And you can charge just so much and so the time is going to give up. Yes, so I, so I ran into this problem, like, okay, I need to hire staff, right, so that I can have more clients, et cetera. And I could not find anybody to hire. Nobody had the skill set. Didn't matter if they're PhD level, MSW, how much experience they had in gaming. Yeah. The, their understanding of how to use a role-playing game safely for an at-risk population was lacking. And it would take me a very long time to train them. So that's why I had to, around 10, 12 years ago, really focus on trying to put together resources for people to get information on the the approaches that could scale better and that would create the workforce that I needed. And I've got about half a dozen employees now yeah. and then about 200 volunteers on the nonprofit side training around the world. So one of the things is, is and also for research, right? We've got a whole research feedback model between our community programs sure. that we need to find ways that this can be a repeatable, scalable thing that more people can be trained. Now, the tabletop experience doesn't scale, period, in and, in and of itself. Because if you go more than about five or six players per table, you start losing a lot of the benefits of uh, the, 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 the small group three to five. Three to five, three to six is the sweet spot for tabletop role-playing gaming. We've done so many experiments with that. You can do it with single player and two players, and that's okay, but Three to five, three to six, you get the most benefit. Well, it's like any groups. The group dynamic starts to fall apart after you have six, eight people. It, yeah, and, and certainly according to Tuckman, when you get above nine and then you need separate groups. So sure. now you can scale better with electronic and with live action. Both of those create a larger scale that you can do. So, you know, with between combinations of AI, workflow controls, et cetera. So, for example, Neverwinter Nights. 
with the individual clients, yes, I was hand, I did a lot of hand holding. But with other clients later on, as I had more advanced versions of the modules, I could script a lot of the NPC reactions and it, to the players. Right, they have a little menu to pick from as they go, um, to to be prescribed and be scalable. So now I can have 60 different clients on the same server and I don't have to oversee every single one all the time. I can kind of keep a general eye on them. And, but it, and the reason why I like Neverwinter Nights is it's the closest to the tabletop experience that I've seen in the electronic world. Yeah. And that gives me some scalability. The other scalability is just building the, the workforce. As I said, there, I, I know of organizations in Texas and Colorado who their programs have both done harm. They've had to shut their programs down. They're both licensed therapists, PsyDs, PhDs, MSWs, and they were gamers, and they just cobbled it together. Some of them literally just downloaded from our website and jumped in, but they avoided all of our training, You're welcome. our peer yeah. review training, all of that, and they tried to do it without understanding it, and they did harm with these at-risk populations. And so so uh, we're, we've been working on a scale to kind of rate uh, different game systems in their safety, if you will, with at-risk populations. Sure. So No Thank You Evil by Monty Cook Games is a quote-unquote safe game for pretty much anybody. There's a low risk for using that game with higher risk populations, but it's not going to appeal to everybody, right? It's geared for younger kids, five to 10 or so, right. or developmentally along those levels. We have one game master trainee who that is their developmental level. They're third grade, they're an adult, but they're developmentally third grade. And they can GM No Thank You Evil very well and have done nicely and they're able to do it in their halfway house setting and all of that. Uh, and that, and that game is great for that. But it's not really of interest to teenagers. We use it sometimes to get adults to loosen up, et cetera. But we look at like then the versions of D&D. I talk about the lack of structure in D&D 5th edition that makes it a higher risk game for at-risk populations than let's say the One Ring role-playing game or Adventures in Middle Earth because they're lacking behavioral guidance rules. Not behavior modification, just to be clear. Behavioral guidance rules. Sure. So like the alignment system in the original D&D and up, until, uh, up through 2nd edition was pretty serious if you went against your alignment. If you're a good guy and you did evil things, and your alignment changed to evil because the DM decided you've done so many evil things, you're now evil. You, you can't call yourself good when you do slaughter villages, etc. Um, if you were a paladin, you'd lose all your special powers and become a regular fighter. If you were something else, right, you would lose like a whole level of, of advancement. Like these are pretty serious consequences to making the, the choices to do these quote unquote evil actions. Well, and, and they certainly are, especially for the populations that you're treating. And, and I want you to finish your thought here. Uh, but then what I'd like to do is I, I want to flip the script on you a little bit. And I want to say I'm sold. Uh, I, I think that I can absolutely see – no, really. Uh, and and it was a sell because walking into this, I was a little bit dubious, honestly. Uh, okay. and, and, and I'm pretty straightforward about these things. Uh, I, I want to see a, a cogent argument offered and I, I think you made a very compelling case. We're talking about though about a – not optimally scalable leverage – not – let me say not optimally. Modal- it's a difficult modality to scale. Right, right. It, it doesn't scale yes. quite uh, as we would wish, but, you know, be that as it may. And we're hoping technology can come to bear to be able to help some of this. I'm working on That's it. my world. I work in, you know – Me too. Applied AI, human loop reinforcement machine learning. Uh, I'm – this is where I live. Uh, yep. 
But the work you're doing with an at-risk population is very different than the work you're doing in the intro uh, I, I teed up. And I made mention of the fact that your crown, right, uh, and the mantle you wear is excelling at helping leaders take their ideas and turn them into – and they're crazy ideas, right? They're, uh, uh, hey, Hawk, uh, okay, don't think I'm nuts, but – that's how those conversations start, I'm sure, right? Uh, don't think I'm nuts, but here's what I want to do. And you take those ideas and you help turn them into engaging, nearly irresistible technology. I get why it's very tough to scale something with an at-risk population. What about the other end of the continuum, though? What about when we're working with you know, high potentials and we're working with people in these organizations and we're saying, how do we and, – and the therapeutic world, you and I could talk about this for three days. Uh, I have a bottle of scotch here. We could break open the scotch. They wouldn't tear us away from this conversation. But looking at sort of the, the other side of the coin, if you will, right, the commercial implications or even – and then after commercial, if we have time, I want to talk about – not the commercial. I don't do commercials. But I have to talk about the commercial implications. I want to also talk about societal, right? And so how do we leverage this sort of same capability? Yeah, I think it's great. Let's talk – and I'm so glad we took time talking about the individual level, right, for at-risk people, uh, people who are hurting, people who are, are your – and I know that it's out of vogue to call them patients, but your patients as a recreational therapist are very different than the people who your clients, right, when we're talking about in the corporate arena, who are very different than the populations in society, which I'm I'm assuming we're go, you're going to tell me we can even impact at a societal level. So yeah. if you don't mind, let's start at the at the more prosaic. Let's how do we scale some of this thinking to if I want you to help my organization and I come to you with these harebrained notions or I don't even, I just say, Hawk, I hear that you're doing amazing things with and through gaming. Is there anything you can do to help my company improve the th only things that companies care about, right? Productivity, profitability, quality, customer service, retaining top talent, those sorts of things. And, and I have, I do do occasional um, like retreats with corporate executives and their teams, uh, team building retreats, right? You know, there's all kinds of those, right? You do survivalism treats, et cetera, to help your executive staff sure. and sales staff and others build camaraderie and trust and, and all that. And so we've done role-playing game retreats, some of them in tabletop, some have been live action, sometimes they're a mix, uh, sometimes they've been electronic based. Uh, and then, so through the role-playing game experience, that camaraderie building, that trust building, the forming, storming, norming, performing that comes up, that hopefully accelerates the forming, storming, norming, performing to get them to performing in the real world, right? Once they've gotten through who does what and where their strengths and weaknesses are, they've gone through the storming and stepping on each other's toes and challenging authority and all of that. Now they know whose strengths and weaknesses are and then they've they figured out in the game world, now they need to be able to generalize that into their work world. You know, it's funny because what you're saying and we won't even talk about the adjourning phase, but what you're talking about sounds almost like a fast-forwarded version of uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, right? A little bit, yep. You're taking these people on this mythic heroic journey. Yeah, and, and I'm talking, I'm referencing Tuckman with the forming, storming, norming, performing, adjourning, exactly reforming. Tuckman, sure. Right. But it's, it's interesting to me also that you're paralleling what we had talked about much earlier in our conversation when we were talking about some of those benefits 
even the kids were getting from games like my son and, and the other people, you know, focus, collaboration, cooperation, teaming, yeah. multicultural awareness, these kind of things. And so you're bringing this into a real world environment through this notion of RPGs, right? Through this notion of using RPGs as a facilitant for it. Very, very, very interesting. Yep. And, and it's been highly effective. And, and, and some, we, you were, you have a question later about the ultimate game and that's all related to optimizing the RPG experience. And a lot of that's related to optimizing the immersion and flow state, et cetera, lowering the barriers to entry, all of these different areas. And, uh, of course, generalizing the skills, right? It doesn't do, I mean, it's great, it's entertaining. This is the difference between right. applied gaming and just gaming for gaming's sake. Can you do the things you learn in gaming apply in the real world? Do they benefit you outside of the game? Are you developmentally benefiting? Or is it just a moment in time lost forever that, yeah, you had a good time, but there's no real benefit afterward from that activity? Like vegging in front of the television, research shows you're better off with the TV off then just on in the background, depending upon what channel it's on, you're actually, you're going to have more stress, be less recharged and less functional, leaving that TV on in the background, yelling at you all the time between commercials and everything. Especially if it's the news and it's not Andy Griffith show. I think you're exactly <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, not that I watch the Andy Griffith show every day, but although nothing wrong with that. And you can't get that time back, right? You've got, you've got no benefit from it. You've actually suffered for it. And there's, there's no benefit outside of that time bubble that was used. Whereas these other activities, especially if they're used in an intentional, applied, goal-driven way, yeah. then you can really maximize. And that's what we're always looking at, to optimize. Like I used to run game sessions that were 16 hours sometimes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Those were marathons. You, you told me you should only spend you know, uh, a finite amount of time every day on, on games. And you shouldn't. Yeah. Well, okay. So, here, here, so, so we talk about screen time is one to two hours is good for you. After two hours, right. not so great. Live action, we don't have good data on that, but it's good exercise, so we don't have any data on the LARP side. Sure. The tabletop, we recommend no more than three to four hours per session, is what we found, if you're playing every week or every two weeks. We find that's the sweet spot before cognitive fatigue is too much. And I'll give you an excellent example of cognitive fatigue, which is also an implication to just how powerful an impact tabletop role-playing games have on the brain. So we did a, a fundraiser a few years ago for our nonprofit, RPG Research. Through uh, They reached out to us. They're a podcast called Mind Crack. They play Mindcraft. Very popular. They do huge fundraiser video game marathons. They're all video gamers. And they'll do one to three day long video game marathons. Wow. Like nonstop, except to go to the bathroom and stuff. Oof. Yeah, like South Park where, where they did the It's the End of the World of Warcraft <laughs> episode. They're intense. Um, I'm not saying I never did that, but that's not my normal way of life. <laughs> so they do these one to three day marathons on a weekend and they get people to donate to a good cause. And they, they had us on and they really liked what they saw. So they decided they wanted to do a fundraiser. They're like, great, let's do a 24 hour tabletop gaming marathon. Your GMs GM us and we'll play for 24 hours. And I'm like, your brains will melt. Your heads will explode. Like, no, 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 we do one to three days all the time. Like, your brains will melt. You're, you're not, if you have not ever done tabletop role-playing gaming, that is like telling somebody who's been a couch potato to go run an Iron Man. That's right. That's your right. brain will melt. And they didn't believe me. So we went back and forth and back and forth, and we got them down to eight hours, and they would not do less than eight hours. 
They're like, okay, <laughs> we warned you. But you're also abutting here the issue of addiction. I mean, it comes to a point where hobby becomes, you know, a compulsion where people, I mean, never mind even for these marathon sessions is one thing, but, you know, you and I are aware of, and I think everyone's aware of people who aren't just doing the you know, sub two hours, they're doing 12 hours a day. And, and I forget the term for it. Right. There's actually a term, uh, a Japanese term for people who uh, work to the point where they kill themselves. Right. Well, they, they do have the outcast of Okaku. Uh, uh, that's not, there's Okaku, which is the outcasts. I don't know for the work person. My, my son would know, but I don't remember. Or Otaku. Otaku. Yeah, I don't remember the workplace. It, it comes to a point where, and we've heard of cases where kids get so and meshed in these in the games in the in virtual in the yes. environment where they and by design unfortunately some of them using very manipulative psychological techniques that i i'm on the ethics board for a, another game being developed because of that issue because there are some games that are are doing harm uh for the bottom dollar and, I, and i'm not an anti-capitalist at all don't get me wrong <laughs> uh but i think you can do so in an ethical way and and some of these games are designed intentionally to manipulate a lot of people well and, and i'll argue to uh, to some extent to a greater or less extent aren't they all i mean at the end of the day the goal of a game quite often is to get you to play the game you know there, there's a, a great book i don't know if you're familiar with it um irresistible the Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us All Hooked. Uh, it was written by Adam Alter mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And by the way, we'll put a link to it on the site also. But uh, really, he makes the point that that is the point of, certainly of the games, uh, but of a lot of your online experiences, right? The reason we have the ability to give a thumbs up to somebody on their Facebook post or to be able to like uh, a post on LinkedIn because yeah. we're, we're tapping into the same driving factors of gamification, right? This points, badges, right. and leaderboards where we're giving yeah. someone something and they're getting, I mean, uh, I have to say, I don't engage in social media anymore uh, because I found a point where uh, I felt that draw of the compulsion and and it bothers me to not have full control of my life. I'm, I'm completely the other way. Uh, it drives me crazy to be, to feel like I don't have full control. I, a little anecdote of me when I was, uh, tell you a little about who I am. When I was a little boy, I used to walk home past this candy store back when they had candy stores every day. And uh, every day uh, I would buy myself a Nestle's Crunch Bar. And one day I'm walking past the store and I realized I don't have the 35 cents for a Nestle's Crunch Bar. And I was jonesing, right? And I was like, oh my, how, what am I going to do? I need this Nestle's Crunch Bar. And I thought about should I just go in and steal it? Should I like hold up the store? Should I mug some kid and get some money? Uh, I'm, I'm, well, I was a street kid. I actually lived on the streets uh, back then. And so, you know, this was serious. Uh, I was seriously, do I hold up the store? And I realized it wasn't even that I was engaging these bad behaviors. What shocked me was realizing that this stupid Nestle's Crunch Bar had a hold on me. Uh, and so I didn't have another one for 17 years uh, it, until I gave myself permission to have it again. And I think... You know, for a lot of us, uh, we have that capacity, but a lot of people don't, right? That's It's hard to appreciate and understand uh, that these compulsions, these addictions aren't a choice. It isn't something people can help. When, and I, to my thinking, video game addiction, cyber addiction, uh, gaming, none of these are different 
in many ways than many of the other uh, addictions we talk about. I, I'm not going to say that not exact. They're exactly the same as physical addictions, right? To to drinking, to right. That's what the differentiation is. It's behavioral. Other behavioral addictions, sure. Yeah, and I'm in that camp. So yeah, recently, you know, the World Health Organization uh, classified video game addiction as a diagnosable disorder, and it's not yet part of the DSM five revisions and such. Well, it actually is. In DSM, they actually listed in, I think, section three, where they're saying there's not enough data yet. And and that was, in fairness to them, that was back in, uh, I think it was 2012 was DSM. 13, yeah. 12, yeah, 12 13. Exactly. And so that what they're saying is we want more data. And, right. and, and let me say, I, I think the counter argument I appreciate also, and the counter argument to include it as a diagnosable malady is uh, psychopathologizing it. Billing, insurance billing. It's ultimately, that's what it's all about. That's why the, the DSM, by the way, those of you who don't know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health, or what we shrinks refer to as the big book of crazy. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I didn't just make that up, though. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it truly mostly exists. You're right. I mean, unfortunately, it exists for billing purposes. It, it exists because yep. you want to put something on the form so that the insurance company will pay for it. But one of the biggest arguments about putting in gaming addiction is where do you draw those lines, right? And do you then pathologize the people who, you know, you're not playing two hours a day. And do I set this limit of two hours a day? Do I say now if you're playing for four hours a day, there's a problem? And also, you know, with something like alcoholism or alcohol as an addiction, I can say if you have to have a drink every day, that's a problem. But what you were telling me, Hawk, is it should be okay for someone to say, I play video games every day. Maybe we draw the line and say, do you have to? I don't know. Uh, those are the things that are still under contention. Yeah, life balance, quality of life, life balance, all that. So, for example, for those who are video game professionals, they compete professionally. They win $100,000 or million-dollar prizes. Great point. Or they have shows that their revenue is watch me play a video game on YouTube all day long. Right. And I make a million dollars a year because I'm a YouTube video game professional. That is not the same necessarily as any kind of addiction. That's a profession. We work in the computer tech world. I've had to work really long hours. I didn't always want to, but I had 120-hour work weeks sometimes, right? It just yeah. during the dot-com era, it was crazy. But when it does interfere with your life and your life balance and what you're really looking right. for, uh, there's even – I read that there's a treatment center right up by you in Bellevue, Washington, Restart, yeah. where people can come for treatment, inpatient treatment. Yeah for video addictions, gaming addictions. Yep, so this is where I butt heads a little bit with, with those folks in the video game treatment world. So I don't have a problem with them treating people who are having quote-unquote video game addiction. Um, what I have always seen, though, is that there's some other underlying issue and that the video game is just the modality of, of outlet for that issue, the symptom rather than the causality. Is it an un unbalanced life? Yes. It, do they need to stop doing it and moderate it? Yes. But it is not causal. It is symptom. And they need. And so any effective program for any of these behavioral uh, uh, addiction programs right. needs to take into account the life balance things and giving them other activities and social groups and balance and all that. And it's all the same. So all it is is just a different modality. It's not a different mechanism. 
And fair enough. Fair so enough. That's, that's why it's kind of heads is like, it's not a different mechanism. It's the same exact thing. Use the same, you use the exact same methods to treat this as you do gambling addiction and others. Um, it's, it's the same thing. So I get that they need the code to get paid. Right. <laughs> I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, frankly, where it shows up in the DSM, I, I don't really care about. I think that, uh, most psychologists, if not all psychologists would agree, uh, we don't like the idea of putting people in boxes anyway. We don't like the idea of saying you have this. You know, the the dominant thinking in psychology is what's called the diathesis stress model. And in essence, it contends that we all have all of these conditions. They just exist along a continuum, right? Uh, you know, have you ever um, uh, set your alarm when you had to go to work? And of course, you set it and it was a new job. So you checked it again. Well, did you check it a third time? And, you know, if you stayed up all night checking it, will diagnose you as OCD, as obsessive compulsive disorder. But where do you get on that continuum before we do it? And I think the same thing is true here. It's the four Ds, right? Does it cause dysfunction, distress, danger, and I always forget the fourth one. Deviation. Deviance, thank you, that's it. Those are the four things that have to be for it to be a full disorder. You need to have, and then how severe are each of those? Right. Otherwise, it's just general personality differences, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> We've spent most of our time, and, and I want to make sure we hit this as we, when we still have time, which, by the way, uh, be, lest I forget to say, uh, I'm going to get your commitment. We're going to have you back because uh, I think we could continue this conversation for quite some time, and I hope you're enjoying it as much or half as much as I am. But I am. What I want to talk about with you now is we've talked about the personal level, right? We've even talked about mm -hmm. the small group level, right? And teams and that sort of thing. I want to shift now and talk with you more about the societal level. Right. The theme of this show is everyone tends to talk about when you're in the news, you're reading anything in the media, or you're watching television. We worry about either what happened or even what's happening, but we never take a minute to look forward even a little bit. And we never really spend enough time thinking, in my opinion, about what we can do for tomorrow, today, what we can do to set ourselves. And when I look at, at, at the potential and the possibility of gamification, and a lot of what we've been talking about today, um, uh, and again, this, you know, not to make the show about Jane McGonigal, one of the things that I think we both like about her is, is her notion that, uh, of transferability, right? On the one hand, for the personal level, look, gaming can make you feel like it. you can be a hero in the game and come out feeling heroic. And that is Awesome. I think if everyone would do that, it goes back to our conversation about meditation, right? It would make you a better person, a better contributor to the world. That's awesome. But the other side of that, may I interject just on that, or make a note to interject about that, please? Um, because of the ruination, the the distortion of positive psychology and the and the potential consequences of that, of confidence and false confidence over competence and resilience. Uh, get, that to me is a conversation for uh, our next episode together because I will. Okay, that's a big one. I love I love that one. Uh, I knew Mihalichik, Mihai, I know Seligman, and all those guys. I did a lot of work in in positive psychology space. Uh, that you and I both know. That's an hour conversation at least before we even crack the lid. So yes, I do want to get back to that. <laughs> but if you, one of the, my challenges though with positive psychology is. I would love to see a positive social psychology, I always used to argue, right? Wouldn't that be cool? If you could take like, you know, uh, 
Lewin's thinking, right? And, and instead of being at the individual level, you extend this now into more of a, a societal level. And so that's really what I want to talk to you about is the transferability of these ideas to solve real world problems. Okay. One of the things, again, going back to McGonagall, that I really love is like the work she did in sub-Saharan Africa, right, with, with the game she invent, she created there. There is another group, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them, called the Copenhagen Consensus. Uh, remarkable group, and we're going to put a link uh, about them up on, uh, on the website. But this group comes up with problems, and they put together a team of experts to see if they can help solve a problem. The first one they did that I was aware of was they put together this group of people, and they said, if we had nearly unlimited resources, what problem would we solve to have the greatest impact in the world? And believe it or not— That's the IBM think tank. Well, it's a think tank, yes. One of the things they came up with was the idea of we'd provide mosquito netting. Why? Because it's low cost, high impact. It would reduce malaria, dengue fever, et cetera, et cetera. There's actually one of the guys who runs it, uh, Bjorn Lomberg, wrote a book that is really cool, and it's a really cool thing to think about. The book was titled, How to Spend $75 Billion to Make the World a Better Place. And uh, I love the thinking of that. You know, Elon Musk was recently, he, he I'm, I'm not an Elon Musk fan, those of you who listen to this show know, but Elon Musk put out a tweet saying something to the effect of, if someone could tell him how to, you know, cure world hunger or save the world or whatever, with just $2 billion, he'd write the check tomorrow. And uh, several people wrote in, like, very considered thinking, oh, you could do this. And of course, he didn't want to be part of the conversation anymore. But what I've found is I've done work in things like using prediction markets, right? Uh, and and using a distillation of the thinking of a bunch of different people, collective intelligence, to be able to resolve and solve mm -hmm. real world challenges, to be able to make predictions about the future. And I'm wondering, uh, where do you see a role, if there is any, of gamification in that? Could we, you know, I have, we have like five phrases we run my companies by. One of them is, no one is as smart as everyone. Uh, and then the, the corollary to that is, and no one is as smart as the data. But if we think about it that way, no one is as smart as everyone. I think that's true. You know, you may be, you're a really smart guy. Uh, I, I know a lot of really smart guys. I don't know anyone who's smarter than everyone, right, put together. Uh, th there was an episode, again, going back to the Big Bang, where uh, Penny is arguing with Sheldon and says, well, you know, you don't think, you think you're smarter than all of us, but you don't think you're smarter than all of us together. And he said, oh, no, no that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, okay, uh, dude, get over yourself. Yeah, I know clients who are that way, yes. <laughs> you know, I know lots of people like that too. But let's assume just for a working hypothesis that, you know, 20 sm brilliant people are smarter than any one person quite potentially. How do we use gamification to be able to evoke that? How do we use that to drive collective intelligence, to extract collective intelligence, to to bring collective intelligence together to create uh, what is effectively, I think, an intellectual gestalt, right? Where one plus one plus one can equal 42. And 42, of course, is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Yes. <laughs> Does gamification have a role there, do you think? Oh, boy. Oh, boy, I got a lot to unpack here. So I, one thing... Early on, you said something, and, and I think it's still applicable here. You talked about uh, uh, that humans are unique in their play. 
I would push back on that. Um, I think there's good research that there are other species that play as a critical part of their development. Uh, there's a great book from Stuart Brown, MD, on uh, play. It's just called Play and How It Shapes the Brain. And, and mind you, I, I would concede that point. You know, primates, dolphins, uh, uh, a lot of it, my cat and my dogs play. What I had said was, we take something that should be simple, we make it intentionally more difficult. Sure. I, I don't see my dog yeah. going and, you know, trying to hide the ball uh, in a place where he can't possibly find it. He, he doesn't want to make the game that much harder. I have a standard poodle, it's my third one, and he will literally create games for himself. <laughs> he will literally go lay things out so that then he can play. <laughs> he will move things around so that then he can play around. Right, now with get back and tell me, Hawk, how gamification saves the world. That's what I want to know. Well, yeah, well, and, and, and how important play is for mental health and societal health. So Totally agree. He, you know, there's studies about how when you lock up all the dogs and don't allow them to play, they become psychotic. Yeah. And we see, like, I, we have, uh, on the nonprofit side, we had 1.35 PhDs or PhD candidates uh, helping us with our research. And one of them comes from a Romanian uh, background, was in California, but was from Romanian. And she did not understand why recreation and play. Because she came from a world where, you know, as far as like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and such, which is not a pyramid, uh, <laughs> that the, they're dealing with a lot more survival, right? You got to deal with the biological survival stuff. You don't have time for play and recreation. This is a strange concept. And so she was just mystified that not only, you know, is this a whole profession called recreation therapy, but then that we had role-playing games that you literally make up imaginary stuff around a table, just mystified. And she, she, she came all the way from California to, to Spokane to watch our community programs to try to get her head around what is going on here. Right. Because she sees the data, and she doesn't understand it. It's completely alien. And what we see is play is a necessary part of our development. We see that when children and adults are deprived of recreation and including play, and, and play is a subset of recreation, that there are developmental and mental health consequences. Can they go through the rest of their life functionally? Yes, but we do see a developmental difference when recreation and play have been deprived or restricted. Um, with role-playing games, one of the neat things, especially with the tabletop version, is they tend to be a non-zero-sum game rather than a zero-sum game. So you talk about game theory and how somebody has to lose for somebody else to win in a zero-sum game. But with role-playing games, you don't have to take away from others in order for you and everybody else to benefit. Yeah. So that non-zero-sum mentality is a tough one for a lot of people. Part of how we introduce people to the concept is we sometimes do drum circles. And we'll have all the way from two years old through senior adults and people with different disabilities and all that participating. And we'll facilitate the drum circle with different games, uh, you know, not just meditative random stuff, although we do that too. Uh, and all levels of abilities are able to participate. Nobody's taking away from anybody else. There's an automatic group communication going on and the group as a whole benefits. And if a mistake is made by one or two, it doesn't really matter. It's easy to just readjust and get back into it. And it's a great experience. And it teaches some fundamentals that we find are useful in the concept of a tabletop role-playing game and that non-zero-sum quality. With the group versus individual effectiveness, right? There's studies that show 97% of the time, 
the group is more effective than the individual. The only exceptions in that 3% range are emergencies, super simple tasks, and specialized knowledge expertise. I'm the only person who knows this. It's faster if I just do it than try to teach the group. Or super simple, I don't need a group to help me staple this paper together (laughs) or sharpen my pencil. I do need a group for many pencils. I don't need it for one pencil. We want Sully to take the controls when we're crashing into the Hudson. We don't want a group effort. Yeah, or the emergency situation where like, hey, you, call 911. You, do CPR. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Or just grabbing the kid and pulling them out of the way of the bus rather than waiting for a group committee to decide. Exactly. But yeah, majority of the time the group. So so that right there kind of steers the difference between individual versus group. Although I'm a big advocate for not, right? This is, this is some of the paradoxes of, um, I forget whose paradoxes, but you got the paradox. In order to have group identity, one must give up some of your own identity to take on the group identity. But there was resistance to losing your identity. Although that said, you know, you had mentioned Maslow and his non-pyramid mm. pyramid. Uh, I always thought Maslow yeah. blew it. Yeah. The the top of the Maslowian pyramid is this notion of self-actualization. It's not a pyramid. Uh, I, I've always said what it really is, is being a part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Uh, that's really the pinnacle. And I think what part of what I hear you saying, Hawk, is frankly, the world would be a lot better place if we could play and if we could play the right way. If we could, and, and I don't mean to simplify this. I don't mean to, please don't take from this that I, that I, I mean, yeah, it's no, not it's profound. And I think it is, you know, maybe this notion of we, we suffer, particularly in the United States from this almost, you know, Calvinist puritanical work ethic kind of a thing where, um, you know, if you're not working hard and if you're not working as hard as me, then, you know, shame on you. Uh, although we, we kind of invert that. Yeah, there's this weird inversion of that where we think people who are actually, you know, making a ditch, digging a ditch or, or, or a nurse or, you know, doing something we can say that just labor, and we're going to look. Which I, I never get that either. Or someone who's a plumber. Uh, when we should realize that you know these are the most critical people in our economy and in our world and our society. It's not necessarily the people who are moving things from pile A to pile B. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to your point, for for we as a species, societally, maybe the world would be a better place if we could learn the lessons that you know my my son learned when he was in his teen years and just collaborate, learn to concentrate, learn to coordinate, learn to uh, be more culturally attuned. Uh, I'm running out of seeds, but communicate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's that's very... You know, there was that book way back when, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in right. Kindergarten. Which, yeah. Yeah, no, look, I think there's a lot to be said for that. So if you were going to give some guidance right now, and you were going to say... Not to the to the individual we've talked about, even to the CEO we've talked about, not even the president of the United States. The World Council comes to you and says to you, <laughs> really, you know, there's some – we want to work on the advancement of humanity, which, by the way, I think one of the things that we're missing is something like that. United Nations is the idea to bring people together. Uh, we have now in D.C. they have the Institute of Peace. They've had uh, several of these initiatives over the years, the Copenhagen Consensus. Uh, there have been great groups to talk about what we could do for the overall benefit of humanity. What would your two cents worth be? What would you say, you know what we could do to really improve the human condition and to improve the world? It would be 
Uh, boy, trying to simplify that is challenging for me. This is part of our nonprofit's vision and mission, which is all about trying to improve the overall human experience, right? That is part of our vision and mission statement about the, the studying this, trying to figure out how to optimize it, how to spread it, scale it, et cetera, because we find such immense benefits in quality of life for participants in these activities. How do we get that to on a broader scale? We see that when we do these community programs, the crime rate goes down in the neighborhoods that we run them in. Well, talk to me more about that. Talk about the nonprofit. And, and I also want you to, I, I don't want to leave the conversation without hearing your thoughts on the ultimate game. So if you would address those two things for me. So like the community programs we run, uh, like at Spark Central and other locations around the country, and we've got mobile facilities that we are wheelchair accessible trailers and buses that we take around to rural and remote off-road locations to try to provide these programs because we found that uh, uh, there, there's a great study from Kohei Kato from Japan uh, from 2016, literally measuring you know, agreement from different tools, a quality of life measures. And these were some autism spectrum 14-year-old uh, playing Japanese uh, tabletop role-playing games and such, and how the measures in empathy, quality of life, connections to others, friends, connection in school, connection with family, uh, just feeling better about themselves and about life were improved over this 14-week controlled study. Wow. Right? And these are the problem is we have too few of these controlled studies. And was that a lasting effect, do you think? Well, I see it in my observations, yes. I see it as not just a lasting, I see it as a cumulative effect. Generally, our, the purpose of our programs is to get others to do it and spread it. Okay. So, like, we, we have a quote-unquote competitor in the Seattle area, uh, another nonprofit, and their only metric when they've been on shows and such is they say, we have a 97, 98% retention rate over four years of our programs. To us, that would be a loss. Yeah. That would be a failure of the program. What we want is people to gain and develop these skills and then take them, and we get feedback. We because we we will run the games, and we'll see kids and adults coming in at the community centers, and then they'll disappear. And then we'll hear back six months, a year, three years, five years, ten years, twenty years later, and say, "Oh, this kid is now running our entire fantasy gaming group at our school. He approached us, and now he's got twenty different GMs running the things." You're thinking on this. I think exactly mine. Your goal should be to work yourself out of a job. You know, one of my problems with the oh, yeah. psychotherapy model has always been, you know, uh, I'm supposed to, I, I, that's always been my trouble with most consultants, even to businesses. Your uh, executive coaches. Yes. You know, your job should be making sure you're no longer needed. Even I think when you build tangible solutions. Yeah. And even in my tech industry, so I'm very ADHD. <laughs> and uh, I get, I do have a little bit of neophilia where I get a little bored with, the same thing over and over and over after a while that might show in my variety oh, of skills okay. there and so in the tech industry i i want to come in and help somebody solve their problems but i don't want to stick around for five right. or ten years forever fixing the same problems over and over i want the next new challenge so i intentionally for me a success is the client is now self-sufficient same both in the tech industry and the therapeutic world so these programs are meant to create that self-efficacy so that they can get to self-efficiency and Brilliant. all of that. And that's that big difference between confidence and competence. Yes. It's a road to competence, which will build confidence, versus giving false con uh, confidence, which won't hold up under duress. Yep. 
right? And that's a key part of these programs. And role-playing gaming teaches that through repeated failures and delayed gratification and sustained stressors, all leading to the definition of uh, uh, grit, right? That's part of the definitions of grit, which is that sustainability. I just came across a, a phrase that I really like related to this. It was... Um I, I told you I'm working, I'm, I'm proving my chess. And in that context, I saw this quote that I loved and it said, I never lose, I win or I learn. Right. And and I think you're taking that same sort of a mindset. And I think that's so important. Yep. And, and literally our community programs inform our research. That's how our research grows. We try it in the lab, we, can, we conjecture, and then we got to try it in the real world. And the real world, like we did a muscular dystrophy program, summer camp program, and we offered either tabletop or live action. And it was live action combat boffer. And these are muscular dystrophy kids from five to 17 years old. Some of them, so you know on the uh, International Classification of Disability, ICD codes and, and ICF codes, You've got zero through four. Zero is no impairment. Four is complete impairment. You need assistance, like being on a, a breathing apparatus, et cetera. And then one through three is in between. So all of these participants were one through three. Yeah. And some of them were on trach respirators attached to their wheelchairs, things like that. And some of them couldn't lift the little boffers, so we had to literally like tape them so they made jousts out of their wheelchairs and such. Wow. And... We went with the assumption, you know, we spent six months preparing. I was so worried about safety because you got trach tubes and everything. And I'm like, I just, I, I had a horror. Yeah. Just, oh, just so scared. What am I going to tell my lawyer? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everything. We had about 20, 20 something participants uh, that are in wheelchairs. And then we had a bunch of others that were not. And it was like 30 something participants in combat, right? Charging each other. Ah! Awesome. Awesome. And oh, got video of that. I, I would love, we would post that. I have lots of video and photo, but I don't have releases. We would have to blur out everybody, and it wouldn't be nearly as fun. That's what I've done. I have photos that are blurred. All the faces are blurred. Awesome. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we gave them a choice of tabletop or live action because we assumed, because one of the th key things about muscular dystrophy, the, the, the motto is use it or lose it, but there's a lot of fatigue sure. there. It's exhausting, and they're doing summer camp, and they're doing a lot of programs, and they're tired, and we were worried that some people would just be too tired. So we offered the exact same adventure ah. in a tabletop mode. They could wheelchair into our trailer and do it there. So they would get the exact same adventure, just one was physical, one was tabletop. That was our plan. So at the beginning, we offered everybody, said, okay, you know, break up and do you want to be an orc? Do you want to be an elf? Whatever, doesn't matter. Um, and then you, everybody made custom shields. They had cardboard shields we'd prepared that they could paint and put glitter and <laughs> everything and, and make their own custom shields. And that was a lot of fun activity there. We did a little drum circle to teach them about the cooperative stuff and following directions because you're, we were going to teach them how to do combat in a safe way. Don't hit the head. You know, here's all the things to make it safe. We want to make sure they learned how to follow directions first. So we used the drum circle. So we only had one kid initially do the tabletop game, which is fine. We can we can run one-on-one, -on -one, no problem. Everyone else chose the combat, <laughs> which surprised us. We did not expect that. Nobody expected that. Like, okay, we're, we're fine. You want to do combat? Let's do combat. Suit up. Yeah, but here's where they really, but here's where the in the wild is so critical to inform research, right? Because you never see these things coming, no matter how much you try to think about it until you put it out there. What happened is as they started to get tired, because this was a three-hour session, we did multiple sessions during that, that summer camp week, and they voted it their best programs. They loved it. It was great. Um, in that three-hour session, they would get tired, right? They can only sustain that level of energy for so long, some more than others. But they didn't want to just sit on the sidelines and watch others playing, so they would zip on up the ramp into our trailer and go play the tabletop game that was in progress 
in parallel to the, the physical combat. Wow. And they could continue playing while they recharge their personal batteries. And they do that for like 20 to 30 minutes, and then they'd zip back out and go continue the LARP. And then, so pretty soon we just had this flow yeah. of back and forth between tabletop and live action. Never occurred to us. Oh, that's great. Never occurred to us. They just loved it so much. And so that's why our community programs inform our research so much. So yeah. So the final thing, I my producers will string me up if I don't ask you about, to tell me about the ultimate game. They, they told me absolutely have to ask you before we – okay sign out. In fact, they're sending me nasty notes now that I haven't asked you about it yet. Okay. So I have whipped up a website and I'm still moving the content over to there for optimizedrpg.com. It's just a subpage on the rpgresearch.com site, but it just makes it easier to find. And it's going to take the 40 years of my notes on optimizing the role-playing game experience and just create a nice reference page for you to go find all these things that I'm gonna, you know, be mentioning to some degree. Very cool. Because there's a lot to the ultimate, you know, RPG. And all I'm saying is pretty much optimizing the experience, optimizing, like lowering the barriers to accessibility, whether it's financial barriers, whether it's physical barriers. You know, we work with visually impaired. We, we do adaptive role-playing games for visually impaired and blind. We do role-playing games for the deaf and hard of hearing, you know, ASL, RPG. Um, and we're, we're trying to be as inclusive in, you know, in that way that as many people as possible and, and many genres. So non-sci-fi, non-fantasy, non-horror. It's a modern day, you go on a school uh, uh, outing to a, a festival and strange things happen. And it's like a Scooby-Doo mystery, right? <laughs> it doesn't have to be all these other things. You're putting a clock on things. When we start talking Scooby-Doo, I think we just lost a quarter of our listeners. Uh, but, uh, but there's still the Scooby-Doo movies coming out. They still See they, how out of touch I am? I'm so old, I don't know that Scooby-Doo is new again. Yeah, no, they keep putting out live-action movies and stuff. So so the key things are, from, from my perspective, we want to optimize, lower the barriers to entry and optimize opportunities for individual and group immersion and flow state. That's our main target, right, through this part of this. We're not talking therapy. We're just talking about optimizing the RPG experience. And so we've talked a little bit about the barriers, some of the barriers being that mentor model and the mass learning. Create differential good solo play and then hold your hand. There was one published series ever that I found in role-playing gaming that did it right. 1983, the Frank Metzer Beckme Basic Dungeons & Dragons Red Box. And it was basic expert companion masters immortal Beckme, B-E-C-M-I, where they literally walked you through how to play for the first time. You went through two solo adventures. Then you did a third adventure where it taught you how to GM for the first time, assuming you'd never done it before and nobody else had, and that your other players went through the solo and walked you through. Then you, and that was for levels one to three. Then you had another book that was levels four to 14, and it was, you're assuming you're a GM. Now you're getting out of the dungeon, and you're going to start learning wilderness adventures. And but towns. that goes back to your earlier point that so many of them do it wrong because they start you in the middle where they don't hold your hand when you're beginning and we lose so many people and and it's so rare to find it when it's done right high barriers to entry another barrier entry is money so we we promote at our community centers uh we run many 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 different games doctor who and the one ring and D and and star trek and star wars and many others but one that's a great one especially in communities that have lower incomes is the basic fantasy role-playing game, BFRPG. Um, it's at basicfantasy.org. It's a freely downloadable 
series of PDFs and books, or you can print them, and they're like six bucks a book wow. through Amazon. You can buy the entire collection for like 70 bucks. A D&D kit, a book, is 50 bucks easily, and hundreds of dollars to get the basic set. So, and, and it's an all open source community, and it's basically a D&D light. And the rules are simple, so they're much easier to jump right into and learn. Right, so minimizing the barriers of entry, whether that is the learning curve, the financial issues, any of that. Exactly. And also creating improved causality relationships. So as you know, when an organism is exposed to, uh, uh, makes a choice and exposed to stimuli, the closer those are paired together, the more it is easy for them to make a cognitive linkage between cause and effect. Right. So one of the challenges D&D 5th edition has, because they have made it more video game-like, is that when you make a bad choice in the game, it's hard to kill your characters off. Characters don't die as easily in 5th edition as original and 1st edition, etc. So the older games, your characters died really easily. The newer games, it actually takes a lot to kill off a character. You have to make a lot of bad choices in succession and have a lot of bad luck in succession for a character to die and for a total party wipeout, TPK, total party kill. Sure. Um, so the causality isn't as clear. So we find that in fifth edition is problematic with that risk populations. They don't learn as quickly. They will over time. Right. Well, you know, I, I always share when I'm talking about even my machines, that my machines learn the same way that pigeons, puppies, and people learn. Uh, and uh, that's true of machine learning. It's true of what I do. But we tend to forget that yeah. if we're trying to teach a puppy and we tell him sit and we wait 20 minutes to give him a cookie, that doesn't work too well. Well, you know what? Humans and machines work exactly the same way. We have to pair these things close in time. Exactly right. Yep. And, and so role-playing games that at least initially help with closer pairing of cognitive linkage on how to play the game will be more successful and less frustrating for new players. They're like, oh, I understand now what I need to do. Um, so, so games that do that will, will be more, yep. e will be easier to adapt for new players. And like, I've heard so many stories of like, I was interested in this game and it was too complicated and it was creepy and weird <laughs> and all this and I just, I've never played since. And I gotta tell you, honestly, that's I think why I never got into gaming was the, yeah. the, the barrier entry was too high. And it wasn't necessarily it that it would have been hard to learn D&D. It would have been overcoming being, you know, an outsider and, and getting into all that. Right. There's stigma, but there's time. It's a huge time commitment the way the certain current model is. Well, that's true, too. But with the Beckme one, you literally break open the book and you start playing within five minutes. Is that something we can link to from our website? So you can find that on Drive Through RPG if you look for Basic D&D. It's the Red Box by Frank Menser. So he did the 1983 through 1987 versions, and it was a rewrite of the to Basic producers D &D. to try to uh, find that link if you don't have it, and, and they'll coordinate. Okay, and we're also going to, if you don't mind, we're going to link to. Uh, I was going to say your site, but to several of your sites, uh, <laughs> to several of the resources about you. Yeah. Uh, I got to tell you, this has been an absolutely enlightening conversation for me, Hawk. I, I hope you've, I don't know, enjoyed educating a little bit because I've certainly enjoyed learning. And this has got to be the first of several conversations we have. We, uh, I, I already found so. five different tributaries we can go down to. I literally, I have three pages of notes I've been writing as we've been talking for different uh, avenues I'd like to pursue. Uh, this is going to be a, an ongoing conversation. Hopefully, with all due respect to the virtual world, we'll get a chance to have an in-world conversation now that uh, uh, the pandemic is, thank goodness, finally tamping down a little bit. Hawk, great. a million thanks to you. This has been great. I hope you, uh, 
uh, had a good time. Had a good. Oh, yes. Excellent. Well, thank you, my friend. Thank you very much. We'll be talking to you soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode. We really appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed the conversation. We just wanted to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the Tomorrow Today podcast is a nonprofit venture committed to bringing awareness to important social issues. Funding for this episode, like all our episodes, has been provided by Protected by AI and CodeLock. Protected by AI develops leading-edge solutions at the intersection of technology and psychology. Check out some of the ways Protected by AI can revolutionize your organization by visiting protectedby.ai, protectedby.ai. And CodeLock? CodeLock is a game-changing software security solution that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has said, and I'm quoting you, quote, CodeLock appears to have the capability to stop the most sophisticated criminal malware." end quote. You can learn more about CodeLock by visiting codelock.it, codelock.it. And uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning into the conversation. And please do check out Protected by AI and CodeLock. Tomorrow Today is only possible because of their sponsorship and because you're listening. And be sure to visit us at our website, tomorrowtoday.show, where you'll find show notes, links, and most importantly, ways to subscribe to the show. You can also give us a review, leave us a message, or tell us what topics you'd like us to address in upcoming episodes. Thanks to all of you again for joining the conversation and for helping us make a better tomorrow today. <laughs>